dive into it because time is already getting away and uh, I, I want to stay on track today. Um, question number five. We're on question number five. And so these aren't necessarily in any particular order. Sometimes I put them in a way uh, because of time. So uh, this was the next question you asked. And so we're going to answer, where did different races come from? Or where did different ethnicities come from? What does the Bible say about that? Um, believe it or not, this is one of those things uh, that the Bible does not deal specifically with. Bible does not deal specifically. Now, on a couple of these kind of questions that I knew uh, that could have some controversy, because I know exactly if you grew up in church, in particular circles of the church, I know exactly where your religious mind wants to go when I say this, okay? So, and I'm going to talk about that, but some of these I actually picked up the phone and called some pastors that are smarter than me and said, hey, this is what I'm seeing. What do you think? And, we're, we're, you know, so uh, I, I've got a little bit of support on some of these. And this is one that I asked some questions on. Um, this is not directly dealt with in Scripture. Let me say this. We had a, just a healthy conversation about ethnic diversity uh, in our elders meeting on Monday night. Just really interesting. Um, though the Scripture doesn't say directly where different races come from. Here's, here's what I would say. The reality is there's only one race. And it's called the human race. That's it. And in the human race, there is diversity. And um, we had some just interesting discussions that if we had kids that grew up and didn't know any history or any background or any of that, just kind of grew up in this bubble, could, would we be able then to see uh, different skin color as no different than different hair color or different eye color? Because we are one race and we are the human race. And in the human race, there is diversity of skin color. There is the diversity of physical characteristics. There's tall people, short people, skinny people. And not so skinny people. How many know that, right? And, and, and so there is diversity. I love the fact that God didn't make us all to look the exact same. Right? Um, I love the fact that there is diversity in, in, in the human race. I, heaven is going to be diverse. And, and so the Bible doesn't tell us when it started. There are some speculations. So I'm going to give you some opinions right now. And you can feel free to disagree. Uh, I don't have a, a, I don't have where I'm at with this. I don't have like one opinion or the other. So I'm just going to give you where typically uh, Christians kind of land on this. And that's in Genesis chapter number 11. Genesis chapter number 11 talks about the Tower of Babel. How many of you ever heard about the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel is they're building a tower into the heaven trying to meet with God. And, um, and, and of course, it was right here. And, and I've taught on this under the... The, the series on the Holy Spirit. You can read on it or you can listen to it later. Uh, but at the Tower of Babel, God changed uh, humans' language. It says he confused their language. And, and so um, some believe that it is possible that right here God made genetic changes at the same time scripture doesn't say that to better equip people to survive in different climates of the time 
but just so you know, the Bible doesn't directly deal with it. Different ethnicities aren't a result of sin or any of those kind of things. I've heard all kind of just ridiculous things. It's not scriptural. Scripture doesn't tell us that. There is one thought that, and, and this is just out here, and you can go search for it if you want to. Um, there's one thought that in the beginning uh, that Adam and Eve had the ability when they procreated to create all kind of different diversity to populate the earth and uh, and then when the flood happened you know uh, uh, Noah's sons and daughters were all a part of one of those ethnicities there's no scriptural support to that the only support is that Adam uh, you know because he was all one he was in the image of God that, that there, but all that speculation so the Bible doesn't say everybody good with that one yeah. let's move on question number six if we must be born again to go to heaven, what happens to those that never hear the gospel? And you guys are tough on a pastor, I'm telling you what. These are tough questions here. Um, what happens to those who never hear the gospel? Now, I, there are some things here that I understand about the heart of God and the character of God that I'm going to say. That, that if you don't understand the grace and the mercy of God, you may have a different opinion. And, and I'm just going to tell you that right now. Um, I, I think that sometimes Christians always want to make a formula out of everything. And so how many know you can get saved even though Pastor Ken's not up here going, okay, on the count of three, raise your hand. Repeat this prayer after me. How many know there's a lot of ways you can get saved? Not, and when I say a lot of ways, I don't mean a lot of ways like Jesus or Muhammad or, you know, good works or, you know, all those kind of things. I'm just saying there's not a formula to what we say. Basically, when we call on the name of Jesus, let me give you one scripture. Uh, it's not in your notes, but let me give you one scriptural illustration on this. When Jesus was on the cross, there were two thieves on each side of him. One thief said, skip you, I don't want nothing to do with you. The other thief looked over there and said, man, can you help a brother out? And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And isn't it interesting that Jesus told him he's going to be with him in paradise, but he didn't say the sinner's prayer. I know, because I'm messing with you, because we, oh, but what about, oh, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Let me give you a couple of scriptures that will bring some light on this. And let me say this. Um, the, the Bible doesn't give us like a particular verse that says what happens, but there are, are some verses that help us understand the heart of God. Let me just say this. God did not go through all that he went through and send his son Jesus to die on the cross and go through the horrible death that he did to forgive us of our sin, to now sit in heaven and catch us on a legality. Aha! You're not going to make it. I didn't mean to point at you. I just was out there. Okay. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> you're always sitting in the place I point. But uh, anyway... But, but do you understand, God's not in heaven going, all right, now I let my son go through all that so I can find a reason to kick you out. No. The Bible says it's God's will that all men would be saved. So he's looking for ways to give 
get us in. His mercy is huge. His kindness is what leads to repentance, according to Romans chapter number two, all right? And uh, so let me give you a couple of verses just to consider. Ecclesiastes chapter number three, uh, verse number 11 says this. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Have you ever been somewhere beautiful like the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or somewhere? And have you ever heard anybody or have you ever said, wow, and they say there's no God? How many of you ever heard that or said that, right? A sunset or whatever. Okay, that's what Ecclesiastes <laughs> is talking about here. He's made everything beautiful. Um, and he has also set eternity in the human heart. So the human heart, he said eternity in our hearts. Here's what that means. There is something innate in us that says there has to be more to life than punching a time card for however many years, retiring when I'm 70 and going on. I mean, they're, they're, and becoming wormed You know what I mean? There just has to, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says God has put something in, a, in our heart that says there has to be more to life than this. Okay? I'm just telling you what scripture says out there. All right. And so, um, and, and said, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Let me give you one more scripture in the New Testament. I like to give you old and new. Romans 1, verse number 20 says this. I love this verse and it helps me with this question. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, okay, so it, we can't measure it, but if I've never heard the name Jesus, I've never heard the name God, I don't know what that, who that is, what that means, there's this invisible quality, the Bible says, okay, his eternal power and his divine nature has been clearly seen. Okay? Now, whether we identify that with Jesus or not, we have seen the power, the presence, and the nature of God around us. And according to Ecclesiastes, there's something in that, then, that whether we say the right names or not, that makes us cry out, God, if you're there, make yourself real to me. I don't see that that's any different in modern context than the guy on the cross saying, have mercy on me today. Okay? I'm just saying. All right. And divine nature, watch this, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Watch this last statement in this verse. So that people are without excuse. What people? All people. People that have heard the gospel. People that haven't heard the gospel are without excuse. In other words, there's something about God's divine nature that draws us. To make statements just like the thief on the cross. If there's a God, show up to me. God, are you real? Some of you are here today because you've had those conversations. And, uh, and so it, it, these verses say, basically, if there's a creator, or excuse me, if there's a creation, there should be a creator. Right? There's something in us that says, man, if I'm here, where did I come from? And, and, and it's like I hold this bottle of water in my hands. Now, the evolutionists believe that, you know, things just came together and hit at the right time. And I know it's more scientific than that. But, and then we just began to evolve and just, da-da, here we are. Well, obviously, I don't believe that. There's multiple theories about evolution. And so when there's a lot of theories about one thing, that means we don't know. 
Okay, but God created us, and if there is a if there is a creation, it begs the question, and that's what these two verses are saying, that there is a creator, all right? I'm holding in my hand a bottle of water. This bottle is a Nestle Pure Life bottle of water. It has a blue little thing on it and a cap on it, and so this is a creation, and logic would tell me that that did not just somehow float down a stream and come together and form this little blue thing around it and, and the molecules all came together and the sunlight hit on it and made this little cap and made this bottle in this shape, right? I'm being silly, but ain't I making the right, right? There's millions of these bottles, right? And so they didn't just accidentally come together. Somebody created that. How much more complex am I made? Just study the human eye, if you would, and how complex it is. That means that, okay, and, and I know I'm simplifying, but I'm just trying to, in our time slot, answer the question. There's something in me, Bible says, that says, if I'm created, there must be a creation. I believe in God's mercy and in His grace. Uh, He's the one that determines our heart, not us. I just don't think if I said, hey, God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. I want to know you. I, I, I just, I, I don't see a God of mercy and grace saying, ah, you didn't do it right. You're out. I just don't see it. Here's what I think the better question is. I think the better question is this. Not, I, I don't necessarily think that we should be asking, you know, uh, who isn't going to make it. I think the better question is, what are we doing to make sure people do know the love and the grace and the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In America, absolutely in America. There's people that know those names, but they don't know the gospel message. They know what churches believe, but they don't know the message of grace and love and mercy, okay? And I think as we give money, 10% uh, uh, of our money goes to plant churches, goes to Jewish evangelism, goes to missionaries, those kind of things to help spread the gospel. Okay, so I think the greater question is, what are we doing about it? There's some scripture references there. All right, next question. Question number seven. Question number seven is, are babies born with sin? And there's kind of a few questions jumbled together as one, so I'm going to do my best to kind of hit them all. Are babies born with sin? Do babies that die slash or the babies that are aborted, do they go to heaven? And for some reason, the same question was on a card, and it said... Uh, how did we, uh, let's see, how did people get saved before Jesus? Let me answer a couple of those real quick. Uh, I'm going to give you the fast answer on them. How did people get saved? Well, um, in the Old Testament, there was blood sacrifices made of animals. Again, it goes back to Genesis 2.17. It says, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. So there had to be death satisfied with the law required. So uh, there is a teaching on this on NewGenerationsChurch.com under media called But We're in a Recession. Believe it or not, when I'm talking about money, I talk about, you can go look at it. Uh, it talks about bringing your first fruit, the spotless lamb that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, we brought that uh, in, the in the tabernacle to the high priest. The high priest took that to the Holy of Holies, asked for forgiveness. Uh, some... Uh, religions even today practice 
coming to a priest to ask for our forgiveness. But today we know because Jesus shed his blood, the curtain was rent and we have direct access now to ask Jesus to forgive us of, of our sins. And that Jesus' blood satisfied all the Old Testament IOUs of animal sacrifices. Okay, that's the fast answer. But you can go online and listen to that a little more clear. Okay, so let's answer the questions about babies. Um, are babies born with sin? Well, the answer to that is absolutely yes. I mean, there's no way around that. And here again is where I think that sometimes we have a misunderstanding about what it means about being a sinner. We're not sinners because we did something. We're not sinners because we robbed a bank or cussed or cheated or stole. We are sinners because we're separated from Christ. And we're born that way. Okay, we're all sinners. That precious this little baby is spiritually dead. Romans 3.23 says this. All, all, all includes all. All has nothing to do with age. All have what? Sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A better translation is we're born as sinners. Not sin. See, we identify sin as I did something wrong. We're not sinners because of the act. We're sinners because that's our nature. How many know it's our nature to sin? I mean, no, it's a whole lot easier to sin than it is to do right. It's way easier to tell somebody off than to tell them God loves you. How many know that's true, right? Huh? Come on. And, and so it's, it, it's our nature. That's why Jesus said in John 3, 3, you have to be born again. We're made in the image of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's three parts. We call that the Trinity. We're born the same way. We have a physical body, a soul, which is our mind, our emotions, all that. And then we have our spiritual body. Our, our mind and our body are born when we're born, but our spirit is dead. That's why we have to be born again. Okay? And uh, so that's kind of that in its, in its uh, short uh, version. Um, but uh, let me just give you a couple other scriptures. Psalms chapter number 51, 5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, and from the time of my mother's, uh, it says that. Um, let me just give you one more verse, because I'm trying to hurry here. 2 Samuel chapter number 12. Uh, let me just say this. Yes, babies are in heaven. Um, babies are in heaven. Uh, babies that are aborted are in heaven. I believe that. Um, I believe that based on scripture. Some of it's my opinion, but... but uh, I, I believe that based on scripture. John chapter number two, verse number two says that his atoning sacrifice for our sins are not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And I believe this applies th uh, th that God can apply this atonement to all who are not capable of repenting. And I believe that includes those that have mental handicaps and mental disabilities and babies that are not at the age of accountability, that they don't have the mind to understand yet the difference. It's that whole age of accountability. That's why we don't baptize babies. We dedicate babies. And, at, and the Bible says repent and then be baptized. You have to be able to have an understanding of repentance, okay? And so that's kind of some fast version, but let me give you this story. Uh, you can read it later in 2 Samuel, one of David's babies uh, dies, and he had been fasting that the baby wouldn't die, the baby does die, and there's a little phrase in here that helps me understand that babies are in heaven, okay? Here's what it says. His attendant asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. 
But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. Okay? Verse 22. He answered, David speaking, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. And I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. See, even David knew bad things can happen to good people, right? We'll deal with that on another day. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? It's over. He's dead. I'm, I, I've, I've fasted. I've prayed. I've asked God. God didn't heal him. The baby did die. We don't understand why those things happen, okay? But watch this. Can I bring him back again? He's being kind of facetious, I, you know, what am I going to do? He's passed away. Watch this next line. I think this is crucial to our understanding and support of what I just said. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. You guys see that? I can go to him, I got, but he cannot come to me. So that helps denote to me that that child went to be with Jesus. Everybody with me on that one? Okay, so that's what I got for you on that. Let's move on. Uh, question number eight. I'll take about another ten minutes. Question number eight. What does the Bible say about divorce? <laughs> and I just said I'll take ten minutes. All right. Um, what does the Bible say about divorce? We live in a culture, first of all, let me just give you some facts. We live in a culture, secular culture, that in 1972... Uh, Initiated or legislated what we now call no-fault divorce. In other words, if I'm sick of looking at you, we can get a divorce, okay? No-fault divorce. There doesn't have to be any reason. Just bam. And divorce rates are unbelievable since that time, how they've climbed. Um, and it's a vicious cycle, in my opinion, because when we grow up uh, in a broken home, it doesn't mean that God's grace can't restore it. I'm a statistic to the good, but statistics say that what you go through without the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ, you will probably repeat that. Those that come out of the divorced home are 75% more likely to be in divorce. That Please don't take that as bad news. Again, I'm the exception to that, okay? Because uh, I've lived through a lot of things that I'm not today by love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So I'm just sharing with you uh, statistically um, because when we grow up fatherless or motherless, it creates voids in our life and we don't know how to be husbands and fathers and so forth and so on. But anyway, um, on, on, in the Christian circle, I think this is one of those things that we just need to be careful about. I think that Christians love to pick things that are their sins, that they like to beat up other people with. And I think it's a tragedy. Again, I think when we do that, we, we do not understand God's grace. And one sin in God's eyes is not bigger than another sin. And let me just tell you this. God doesn't want there to be divorce. In fact, he says, I hate divorce. But guess what? God hates all sin because he's holy. Amen. Let me say it again. He hates all sin. But his grace is still big enough to forgive those failures of our life. God loves giving second chances and third chances. That's what grace is about. Because he knew that we could not obey all these laws. Because, because we have a sinful heart. And we're going to do our best, but we're going to mess up sometimes. And God's grace is 
Good, God's grace is big enough for that. And I just think on this one, that you're going to hear my soapbox coming out. I think Christians pick too many things that are our pet sins that we make bigger than other sins. And I just think it's wrong. That's my opinion. You can disagree. Let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible has a few things to say, but let me, let me give you an example. I think we either come from a very liberal side, like live and let live, and, or a very legalistic side. My mom got divorced from my dad when I was probably around five years old. And my mom went to church trying to find some solace. And, 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 and the church literally told my mom, because you're divorced, you can now never go to heaven. That is not the heart of God. This is just not the heart of God. And, um, and so let me show you a couple things, and, and, and I, I don't want to botch this trying to go fast, but let, let me give you a couple scriptures, and again, Old and New Testament. Malachi says that God hates divorce, and I'm going to tell you why. He doesn't hate the person that's divorced, and he's not mad at you because you got divorced. Can I get somebody to say amen? I, amen? Amen just means you agree with it. Help me out. I'm bold enough to answer your questions, so help somebody out of here, all right? Um, but, but he hates divorce, and I'm going to tell you why he's so adamant on this subject, okay? Um, but Malachi, in the book of Malachi, it's a great read. Malachi's four chapters long, and basically Malachi is answering the question of, God, why are you distant from us? And in Malachi chapter number one, God's saying, well, I'm distant because you're worshiping wrong gods. Malachi chapter number two says your relationships are all messed up. Malachi chapter number three says your money's all messed up. You're robbing from me. You're building your own homes and you don't bring anything to the house of God. And chapter number four talks about the relationship between father and sons is all messed up. No wonder you're distant from me. I, I haven't moved, but you have. Okay? And he says some things, and I'm going to read it out of the Message Bible. And here's a second offense. Chapter number two, second reason. Okay, second offense. You will fill the place of worship with your whining and sniveling because you don't get what you want from God. Do you know why? Simple. Because God was there as a witness when you spoke your marriage vows to your young bride, and now you're broken these vows. Now, let me help you understand the time. There was a season here in what God's talking to that, that marriage was no longer sacred. It's like, hey, let's give it a try. If it doesn't work out, let's give this one a try. If that doesn't work out, let's see. Sounds a lot like the world we live in today. Now, please help. Let me. Uh, there's people that are hearing me right now that you've been through divorce. And, and, and I'm not saying that. I'm not saying God's mad at you. Only, here's what I really believe. And this is one of those areas that I told you I'd give you my opinion. I think that there, every situation is different. Every heart is different. Every circumstance is different. And I think that we've got to quit making blanket rules because we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And it's none of your business. Okay? Let's go on. So guard the spirit of marriage. This is what I want you to see. I want you to hear the heart of this. So guard the spirit of marriage within you. Don't cheat on your spouse. Goes on. I hate divorce, says God. Uh, the God of the angel army says, I hate a violence. Uh, what, okay. I, I, let, let me just give you this. Um, the reason God hates divorce is because marriage is to be a picture of our relationship with God. 
And when, when divorce happens, it distorts our picture of God. Because we get our God concepts from our parents. And when our parents are ripped from us and ripped apart, it distorts who, who we view God to be. I know this personally true. My, God, my dad was absent in my life, and I began to get a God concept, not meaning to, of an absentee God. That I had to work harder and do more to get God, to get, to get God's attention on my life. God hates divorce because it's a picture of our covenant relationship with him. Marriage is a covenant. Let me explain. When God created Adam, just follow me with this and I'm going to close. When God created Adam, the Bible says, and you can study this, that he created Adam. All one, both male and female. In the next chapter, he created Adam and Eve. How did he do that? Well, he caused Adam to go to sleep. And how many know this is true? And when God created Eve, did he go back to the dirt to create Eve? No. He created man out of the dirt. That's why guys like to get dirty and girls don't, all right? He created man out of the dust of the earth. But when he created Eve, he didn't go back to the dust, did he? Where did he go? He went into Adam and pulled from him a rib, but basically, if I could say it this way, Adam means all one. Adam was all one. He was in the image of God. God did not need a counterpart to create Adam. Neither did Adam need a counterpart to procreate, because Adam was all one, both male and female. What that looks like, I have no idea, okay? But, but when God created female, then he reached inside of Adam, pulled Eve out, and separated the two. Is everybody with me on this? Adam woke from his sleep, looked across this paradise garden, and seen some animal that he has never seen before, and he looked at her in her nakedness and said, whoa, man. And that's where we got the word woman from, all right? Amen. Okay, now... The reality of, that's true, that's truth, that's what happened. Now, let me sh just show you something. Now, the Bible says when you consummate marriage, the two become one. They were one, all one, Adam, separated. They come together, make a covenant before God and witnesses, and come together, and what consummates that is sex, the sexual union. It's a physical act that has emotional ramifications and in the sexual act you become one. That's why premarital sex is so wrong because you become one with every sexual encounter that you have. Okay? Everybody with me on that? You say, what in the world does this have to do with the image of God? It has a lot to do with it. When Jesus then comes to earth, we are separated from him. God made us to have a covenant, one relationship with him. And sin entered into the world and separated us. So Jesus, also called the second Adam, came to earth. Isn't it interesting that now Jesus lays down on the cross and they pierce his side. Didn't they go into Adam's side? God went into Adam's side. Now they go into Jesus' side, pierce his side. And the Bible says blood and water flow. Why? Those are, there's a lot of symbolism between the blood and covenant and water that I won't get into today. And you can study that on your own. But Jesus now, he's dead in the tomb. And uh, in essence... He's asleep, 
And when he rises again after his sleep, his side has been messed with. He gets up and he looks across creation. And for the first time ever, he sees what is the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. And we can receive his marriage invitation. Watch this. What sex is to consummate the physical union between a man and woman, salvation. Salvation is the consummation of bringing God and man back together. And marriage is to be a picture, come on, of what God desires for man and woman. And, or excuse me, between man and God. And that's why when we destroy this covenant of marriage, it destroys the picture of what God has for us. Say, well, what does the New Testament say? The New Testament has a couple of things to say. They try to trap Jesus with it in Matthew. Matthew chapter number 19, verse number 7 and 8. Why then, they asked, did Moses uh, command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce? In other words, they're saying, well, Moses said we could be divorced. Okay? And so they're trying to trap him. And it goes on in verse number 8. I just want you to see what Jesus replied. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because you're what? Because you're what? Say it one more time. Isn't it interesting that Jesus brings it back to a matter of the heart? He doesn't answer them with a rule. Jesus brings them all right back down to it's a matter of the heart. And I want to say to you, and I know that there are some that aren't going to like what I'm going to say. Um, but I want to say to you that this is a matter of the heart. And I think Christians ought to keep your nose out of other people's bedrooms and other people's lives where it doesn't belong, and they need to work out their own salvation. Because we don't know what they're putting up with. We just have no idea what's going on behind closed doors. And I think Christians are doing a disservice to the kingdom of God when we nitpick and pick our favorite sins, and usually we like to pick the sins that we're doing okay in. here and say things that I'm not saying. I'm not getting, if you're sitting here today and you've been in divorce, you've been through a divorce, I, I, I've been there. I've not personally, but I've watched the pain. And God knows, the reason he hates a divorce is because he knows what it does to a little boy's hearts. He knows what it does to little girl's hearts. He knows what it does in the family. He knows that you have become one. Now, how do you untangle that? You can get married five more times, but how do you untangle the oneness? It's painful. I said it's painful. There, there's always, those kids are always going to be that guy's, you know, dad. Or, you know, so the one happens. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, oneness happens. And, that's, and, and so it, it's painful, and you've been through it. And the last thing we need to do is throw more condemnation and more guilt and more of that on you. That's not, that is not the heart of God. So if you've been through divorce, thank God for his amazing grace that allows us to start over. If you're contemplating divorce, let me as your pastor say, I'm not giving you permission to just go out and get divorced by saying that. But here's what I am saying. I am saying, slow down. Slow your road. <laughs> just, just hold on a second. You have the rest of your life to run out and get a divorce. So just hold on a second. Check your own heart. Get with God. Talk to God. Get some counsel. 
Don't throw in the towel just yet. Find out. I believe God can help you mend those bridges and that what you think is a terrible thing, God can turn it around and make it good for his glory. Would you agree with me on that, church? Yes. Amen. All right. Um, there's a couple other questions I won't get to today. I'll try to do them later in this series, but obviously the series can't last forever. Some people ask me, well, what does the Bible say about killing? And how come there's so much violence in the Old Testament and, or in the Bible? Let me just give a couple of quick answers. When the Bible says in uh, thou shall not kill, there is a difference between the word kill and murder. The better translation in the Hebrew is thou shall not murder. But God does use government to protect freedom and to protect innocent. And there, there is war. We do live in a fallen world, and war does happen. Uh, in, in, there's a place in the book of Luke, chapter number 22, where at one time Jesus said, don't take a sword. But then he said, I'm leaving now, so go get a sword. Okay? He, he understands we live in a fallen world. Um, let me make one. One last statement. My time just went out. Let me make this last statement. Somebody asked, uh, well, how come there's so much violence? Well, you got to understand, God was, there wasn't violence because God was just trying to take territory. The territory is his anyway. There were pagan nations having sex with babies, killing babies, raping women. And the Bible says in Genesis 2.17, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. So sin demands death. And all through the Old Testament, there are pagan people, the pharaohs that are killing all the firstborns, and they drowned in the Red Sea. How could God do that? Because he said in the beginning, there would be death. And so all through the Old Testament, we see God's judgment come on all these people and nations. Guess what, though? We don't see it in the New Testament. We see all of God's judgment come on one man, and that man's name was Jesus. And he took all of God's judgment. If you don't believe that, it's not in your notes. Isaiah chapter number 53, it says our sins, our chastisements were upon him, and God judged him. And if God judged Jesus for all of my sins, and Jesus died for all of my sins, then I don't have to die for all of my sins. I can live and rule and reign forever with Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, that's all I got. Did you get anything out of that today? All right.